0: (laughs) what up church how y'all doing this morning doing all right doing all right so full disclosure uh, I'm battling a little bit of a cold here so if I shook your hand this morning now would be a good time to get the hand sanitizer out I'm really sorry about that Um, but I'm excited to get to be here uh, because I trust God wants to speak to us and when we hear a slice like cords uh, it's amazing God protects us he provides for us uh, and he's actually speaking to us And we just want to say with confidence then that we know that you are not here by accident. You are not here by accident. God wants to speak to you today through his word, through our worship, through the slice, through the sermon. And he wants to speak to you because he wants you to find joy in him. Because we often worship what we find joy in, right? At the very least, we devote ourselves to what we find joy in be it football or a career or a family, if we find joy in it, we will devote ourselves to it. And so our hope for today is that you would be filled with joy that comes from knowing our God, knowing that he genuinely likes you and he is for you, not because of anything you did, but because he made you and he deems you worthy of eternal value as his kid. And so, the clearer we see these truths, the more His joy is going to make its way through our heart. It'll warm the cold areas, it'll soften the hard areas, it'll change us, and it will drive our devotion and affection towards Him. And so, regardless of whether you're on a spiritual high this morning or feeling stuck in a valley this morning, we just want to be reminded of the joy we have in Christ. But in order to see that joy more clearly, We need to allow Scripture to speak to us. And our passage in James today speaks boldly. It has often been debated in Christendom. In fact, some church reformers in the 1500s wanted James taken out of the Bible because of our passage for today, because they thought it taught works-based salvation. Now, we know that no passage in Scripture teaches works-based salvation, But it does challenge us. It does force us to ask the question, what does a genuine faith in Jesus look like? What does that actually look like? And so today, some people here may see for the first time that they do not have a genuine faith in Jesus and that their faith is dead. And for others, today may be a reminder of the joy you get to experience through your genuine faith in Christ I do not know which message is for you, but we cannot ignore either of them. So let's just look at the word together today and allow it to have its way in our life. Because as we said earlier, our God loves us and he wants to speak to us and he is after our joy. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you that you are here and that you delight in speaking to your children. Thank you that we actually get to have a relationship with you. Thank you that you didn't leave us alone. Thank you that we're not in this room alone, but that Holy Spirit, you're here with, with us, and that you have something for us, Lord. And so, Lord, I pray that you would peel back the areas of our life, the areas of our life that need to be brought into the light so you can transform us and make us more into the image of your Son. Lord, we don't want to try and manufacture good works. Uh, we want to genuinely see the fruit of the Spirit in our life. And we can't make that happen on our, lo- on our own. So we just ask that you would do that during this time and that you would encourage us through your word. We love you and we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so if you have a Bible, go ahead and flip open with me to James 2, verses 14 to 26. The words are also going to be on the screen for us. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is that? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say to me, you have faith, I have deeds show me your faith without deeds, and I'll show you my faith by my deeds. You believe there's one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person. You want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Wasn't our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? His faith and actions were working together, and his faith was made complete So faith without deeds is dead. Faith without deeds is dead. This is where some of us begin to question James. James, do you even know the gospel? Are you contradicting Jesus? Are you contradicting Paul? Don't you know that we're saved by faith alone? What are you thinking? But before we turn against James... Let's turn to Scripture and see what Paul and Jesus say. For instance, look at what Paul says in Ephesians 2, verses 8 to 10. It says, By grace you've been saved through faith. And this isn't from yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not by works so no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So we're saved by grace through faith. But when we taste salvation, we see the big picture. We've been made by God, and as his precious creation, good works spill out of us. It's just what we do. It's who we were made to be. In Galatians, Paul says we're saved by faith alone, but Galatians 5, 6 describes what saving faith looks like. He says, in Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So only faith counts towards salvation, but it's a faith that works through love. Paul calls these works of love the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. And the fruit just reveals the faith. Jesus said the same thing in a parable from Matthew 13. A genuine faith in him produces faith. In the parable, there are four kinds of soil that represent four kinds of people. And the seed, the gospel message, falls on them all. One person has no faith in Jesus. So the gospel seed never grows on that soil. But in the other three soils, the gospel seed begins to germinate and people say they have faith. But two seeds never grow root. So even though the people say they have faith, they grow no fruit. But one of the soils, the seed actually grows roots and their faith bears fruit. So the sole indicator for a genuine faith is fruit. Your deeds of love for God and for people. And the issue isn't how much fruit. The issue is simply having a faith that bears fruit. This passage might sound harsh, but it's the same concept we see in our relationships with other people, right? Just this past week, my wife and I got into a bit of a conflict. I was watching football, and when football is on TV, I'm like a moth to the flame. I just gravitate towards it. It draws me in. And as I'm watching football, Erica comes home, and her back has been killing her this day. So she says, hey Vake, I got some bags in the car, uh, can you grab them for me? And I'm like, oh yeah, I'll do that at the next commercial break. Till then, uh, you want to watch some football with me? And she's like, "Uh, that's okay, I'm going to go mow the lawn instead. So I'm like, oh cool, I know my baby <laughs> loves to mow the lawn, that's one of her favorite chores, uh, so you do you, Erica. You do you. You enjoy mowing the lawn. I'll enjoy my football, and everyone will be happy. But as time passed, I started feeling a little shame. I started envisioning my neighbors watching Erica labor in the hot sun, thinking to themselves, well, there goes that minister making his poor wife mow the lawn again. (laughs) He's probably inside watching football by himself. A few slaves away doing yard work. And so in my guilt, when Erica came back inside, I said to her, hey, you know, it's the weekend. Why don't, why don't we just spend some time together? You know, why don't we spend some quality time together? Uh, we can watch some football together. Do you, do you care more about the lawn than you care about me? Which really wasn't the issue, right? Like the real issue was I don't like feeling like I'm lazy. And understandably, Erica a little perturbed at this point. So she looks me in the eyes and she says, watching football is not quality time. And if you wanna show me that you actually care about me, you could help me do yard work. Or you could get those bags out of my car like I asked you to do hours ago. And she was totally right. I had totally forgotten that she'd asked me to get those bags out of her car. Now, it took me a bit, but eventually, the Spirit convicted me, and I set things uh, things right. I set out to make things right with my baby, and so I apologized, (laughs) I got her bags, we resolved our conflict and my actions started to reveal my love for her. But what if I didn't do that? What if I constantly neglected her and her desires in our relationship? What if I told her I loved her but never actually did anything to show my love? At some point, it would be good to ask, do you really love your wife or is your love dead? Similarly, if I say I'm a Christian But you see, no love for Jesus and no love for people, my faith is dead. James isn't contrasting faith with works. Instead, James is contrasting a living faith with a dead faith. And we see that right off the bat in verse 15. James paints a picture of a dead faith for us. He says, Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and food. If one of you says to them, Go in peace. Keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs. What good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. So a fellow Christian is ravaged by poverty. No food, tattered clothes, and desperate for help. And someone in the church goes up to her and says, Sister, what's the matter with you? You seem stressed. Why don't you go put some warm clothes on? Why don't you eat some dinner, and why don't you just relax? James is saying, you are saying nice things, but you are showing no love. You are being a hypocrite. I'm sure many of us know this, but Christians don't have the greatest reputation in our society today. A study by Time magazine found that 38% of 16 to 29-year-olds surveyed in the U.S. have what they would call a negative perception of Christianity. And the most common word people used to describe Christians was hypocritical. And these stats were magnified to me by a run-in I had with my neighbor a couple weeks ago. She began talking about politicians who claim to be evangelicals, uh, but right now they're known in the news for these awful things that uh, might be going on or they are doing. Now, I'm not really big into politics, but I said to her, hey, I actually would consider myself evangelical in a spiritual sense. And then she got this really concerned look on her face. And she was like, oh, honey, don't don't say that about yourself. Evangelical is a nasty word. You don't want other people thinking you're a hypocrite. And she wasn't trying to be mean in that moment. She was just speaking out of her own experience. But it's sad that evangelical Christian has become synonymous with hypocrite in our culture. And that's the crux of what James has been trying to address in this letter. If you claim to be a Christian... If you claim to have the Holy Spirit, stop being a hypocrite. Stop just reading the Word and start doing what the Word says. Stop showing favorites with people and start showing people the love of Christ. Stop talking like a Christian and start loving people like a Christian. If any of you know Shannon Williams, he's part of our H2O City community. And Shannon and I actually uh, wrote a spoken word poem about this passage. And sadly, Shannon... Isn't here to share it with us, uh, but he's allowed me to share it uh, because we think it echoes James's heart, and it's called "Don't just tell me." Don't just tell me what you believe. Don't just give me empty words. Your faith in action is meant to be worship manifested through your deeds. Don't dodge the responsibility. Don't downplay priority of wearing the name of the one who came to reframe your destiny. He left heaven for you, paid the ultimate price, literally crossed you over from death to life to make you a new creation. So don't just tell me what you believe. There has to be more. Like a soldier at war, your good deeds are artillery against apathy, against hate and hell schemes and hypocrisy, setting captives free, loving enemies. All this is made possible through your new identity. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news in word and deed to bring Christ's kingdom, true freedom, on earth. So don't just tell me what you believe. Don't just give me empty words. Your faith in action is cold water to a world dying of thirst. Help me believe. Help be Jesus's hands and feet through the Spirit living inside your body. But Don't do it because you think it saves you. Do it because of what he gave you. Don't just tell me what you believe. I truly believe, just like the spoken word, James isn't trying to shame us. He's trying to get us to lift our eyes and just see the needs that are around us. In this church, on this campus, In this city, God wants to use your faith manifested in loving deeds to bring redemption. Looking back at the passage in verse 19, James addresses another sign of an incomplete faith. He says, You believe that there's one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. So people were saying, Hey, I have faith. I'm a Christian because I believe in one God. And the people saying this were trying to show off their doctrinal knowledge. They were quoting Deuteronomy 6, and it would be like someone quoting John 3.16 today to show that they're a Christian. So James is saying, good. I'm glad you believe in one God. I'm glad you know Scripture, but so the demons. In fact, the demons know theology better than most people. But here's the thing. The demons don't do what Jesus says. So if you know stuff about Jesus and don't actually know and follow Jesus, you are not a Christian and you are not saved. I love cord slice. And sometimes we can grow numb to a slice that starts off with, I grew up in a Christian home. But honestly, those are some of the most fascinating stories to me. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I didn't grow up with VeggieTales, I didn't grow up with youth group, so when I got around Christians, they were like, oh, this dude definitely doesn't know Jesus, and it's very clear. But the kids who grew up in a Christian home, they pick up the Christian jargon. They learn the behavioral expectations of their community, how to think, how to speak, how to act, and it's easy for them to play the part, but not actually know Jesus and just coast off of their parents' faith. Now, there are many fabulous, wonderful, God-given gifts of growing up in a Christian home, but James is just giving a warning here. There are people in the church who claim to be Christians, who go to church, who know the lingo, who listen to worship music, who have a cross necklace or a Jesus tattoo, but they are not Christians because you can't see any love for God or any love for people in what they do. Let's finish up verses 20 to 26. James says, You foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Wasn't our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. The scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And as he... And he was called God's friend. So a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, wasn't even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. I love this beautiful dichotomy that James sets up for us. He says, okay, if you need more evidence that faith without deeds is dead... Look at Abraham. The, the Jewish Christians had the utmost respect for Abraham. He was the father of Israel. And in their eyes, there could be no greater example of faith. In Genesis fifteen six, it says, Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited to him as righteousness. But later, we get to see Abraham's faith in God put into action. God promised Abraham he'd bless the nations through Abraham's descendants. And his son Isaac was the one he would fulfill that promise through. But then God says to Abraham, sacrifice Isaac. And you've probably heard this story before, but don't dehumanize these people. Abraham puts his precious son on a donkey and they somberly tread up a mountain. And his son innocently asks, dad, where's the ram for the sacrifice? And all Abraham can say in that moment, and I imagine this with tears in his eyes, is that the Lord is going to provide, son. Somehow the Lord is going to provide. And with fear and trepidation, the Bible says, Abraham binds up his son, ties him up, and then he lifts the sword but then we get to Genesis twenty-two, twelve, and the Lord says, stop. And now you and I and everyone who hears the story of Abraham will know his faith was real. We'll know the Lord is truly a treasure worth giving up all we have for. Abraham was willing to sacrifice the promise because of his faith in the Lord. And James is saying, look, Abraham wasn't saved because he was about to sacrifice Isaac. But Abraham revealed that his faith was real in that very moment. Now, Abraham would make sense to a Jew. That example of faith makes total sense to a Jew. But Rahab? Rahab was a forgotten Canaanite prostitute living in Jericho. And no little girl dreams of becoming a prostitute, right? So many wicked, evil, devastating, heartbreaking things have to happen to lead someone into prostitution. Rahab was probably used as a pagan sex ritual and treated like a soulless object. And yet in the midst of the horror that she experienced, in the midst of the hopelessness that she might have felt, Rahab starts to hear these rumors these rumors about the God of Israel, and she hears about his grace and hears about his power, and then she has this crazy thought come into her mind, what if there's hope for me? What if there's somehow, some way, hope for me? And so when the spies from Israel come to help her, or come to help, come to her for help, that was a tough, tough one to say, uh, she tells them, I've heard of your God. I've actually heard of your God. And then she puts her small faith in God into action. And she risks her life to hide them from the Canaanites. And through Rahab, God brings Israel into the promised land. And not only that, but through Rahab's bloodline, Jesus is born. Jesus is born through Rahab. How cool is that? So what's James saying by using these vivid examples of Abraham and Rahab together? He's saying no matter how far from God you may feel, no matter how faithful or faithless you've been, no matter who you are, redemption is possible. You can have a living faith. You can turn to Jesus. And if you do, you can enter into something far greater, far more beautiful than Abraham and Rahab dared to imagine. Earlier today, we looked at Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Look again there with me. It says, by grace you've been saved through faith. This isn't from yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not by works, so no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And it's pretty cool. The Greek word for handiwork in verse 10 is poema, And it's where we get our English word poem from. How beautiful is that? You are God's handwritten poem to the world. He wants to speak through you. He wants to use you to move in people's hearts. He wants people to see you so they can know him and praise him. Every person on this earth craves to live a life of purpose, a life of meaning. And there is no greater meaning and purpose than what our God gives us. He made you in his image. You are uniquely crafted so you can uniquely display his beauty to people. And every word you say, every deed you do, it matters. It truly matters. It echoes in eternity. And so the commands in scripture aren't just a list of things for you to do or not do. They're an invitation into the deepest, richest life possible a life full of meaning a life that displays the beauty of our heavenly father and his kingdom here on earth now as we read this passage from james today i imagine at some point you might have felt your internal legalists start to activate because if you've spent any amount of time in the church you probably have a little pharisee inside you and he's saying something like give me that list tell me what to do. Tell me the works I need to get done. I don't want to be dead, so just lay it out for me step by step and let me do it. It's tempting to see this passage as an exhortation to work harder. But instead, this passage is meant to help us see we cannot do this in our own strength. It will not work. We need help. Because no matter how hard we work, we will eventually get tired of loving on our own strength, right? Maybe we can love some people for a little bit. Maybe we can love for a little bit longer on some days. But what about people we don't get along with? What about the people who try our patience, the people who drain us? Show of hands here, anyone here knows someone that it's hard for you to love? Anyone? Okay. Okay if your hand is not up, I'm just going to assume that that person is sitting next to you right now and you don't want to embarrass them. Um, It's hard for us to love people, right? And God knows that. He knows that our default is to selectively love people for selective amounts of time. So as we leave here today, there's only one work I want to exhort us to. When Peter preached at the end of Acts 2, The crowd starts shouting to him, tell us what to do. Just tell us what to do. We want to know what to do. And what Peter says is so beautiful. He simply says, repent and be baptized. In other words, turn to Jesus. Turn to Jesus. See him. Fall in love with him. Position yourself under the waterfall of God's grace, and he will change you. That's what leads to a living faith. That's what leads to a love for God and people. I love my wife, Erica. We've been in a relationship together for over eight years now, part of that dating, part of that married. And what's amazing is that over those eight years, I keep learning more about her. I keep seeing new things about her. I I get fresh reminders of things that I love about her. And so when I mow the lawn or when I get her bags or when I serve her and spend quality time with her, it's not so that she loves me more. It's not that I'm trying to show other people that I love her. It's that the more that I get to know her, the more I fall in love with her and the more I want to show my love for her. And to a much, much, much greater extent, our God is inexhaustible. There's more to know about him, more to fall in love with about him, more to experience with him. There's always something new about him to marvel at, something new to glimpse at. You know, just ask anyone who has been walking with the Lord for more than a few years. Even after years of walking with him, he continues to romance us. And so the point of church or prayer or Bible reading or any other spiritual discipline that we do is not to save us. It isn't even the fruit that verifies our faith. Those things simply fuel our understanding and love for the Lord. And through our love for him, he will transform us to be more like him and to love people like he loves. And although it will be imperfectly executed, it will be present. I'm going to go ahead and invite the band to come on up at this time. And if you're sitting here today and you're unsure if you have a living faith or not, would you do me a favor? Would you just mark down on your Connect card that you would like to talk to someone about your spiritual journey? We would love to buy you coffee. We'd love to hear your story and we'd love to just connect. And if you came here today and you know the Lord, but you're feeling a little beat up, you're struggling to love the Lord. You're struggling to love other people. This might just be a desert season for you. But just like Abraham, just like Rahab, just like the people in Acts 2, you can turn to him. Repentance is a sweet gift. You can turn back to the Lord and his grace you can turn back to your first love and drink of this sweet romance with him. Because out of that sweet romance, we cultivate a genuine faith of joy. And that faith is a faith that bears fruit. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, you are wonderful, you are amazing, and you are so, so good to us. Thank you for loving us. Thank you that where there wasn't a way to know you, that you made a way to know you, that you came down and you rescued us. Jesus, that you died on the cross to pay for our sins and you made a way for us to know know you and that your Holy Spirit is living inside us right now. Lord, we don't want behavior modification. We don't want to try and manufacture love for you or other people. We can't do that. But Lord, thank you that you are here And thank you that you desire for us to know you. And so, Lord, I pray for us as a church. I pray that we would fall madly, deeply in love with you. And that out of that love, the world would get to see your kingdom enacted here on earth through our deeds. Lord, I pray that our faith would be put into action. That they wouldn't just be words, that they wouldn't be hollow, but that you would breathe life into our faith, that you would breathe life into our actions as a church, and that the people on this campus would see our love, our faith in action. Lord, we can't make that happen on our our own. We need you. We ask that you would breathe life into us, and we thank you for loving us. Thank you for being so patient with us. Thank you for being so gracious to us, and thank you for inviting us into this relationship with you and this purpose and meaning that we could only dare to imagine. We love you, and we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.